Hi, you're listening to What's the Schemata, a schema therapy podcast for therapists. With ISST accredited schema therapy supervisors and trainers, Chris Hayes and Rob Brockman. For more information on schema therapy, visit our website, schematherapytraining.com. Hello and welcome to What's the Schemata? What's the Schemata is a specialist podcast for everything schema therapy. Uh, I'm joined with Dr. Rob Brockman and today we've got a fantastic um, guest. It's part two of our interview with Dr. Jeffrey Young, the originator and pioneer of schema therapy. We recorded this with uh, Jeff back in early January 2021 and uh, for the next 45 minutes we have a fantastic conversation. We get stuck into some more detailed uh, material involved in schema therapy. Now this uh, presentation is brought to you by Schema Therapy Training Online. We have a highly interactive, engaging set of courses that you can take online in your own time. We've also got live Zoom training that you might be interested in. And it really ranges from the really basics um, of schema therapy uh, right to masterclass level material. So if you're interested, have a look at our website www.schematherapytrainingonline.com. We start the second part of the interview with Rob asking Jeff a little bit about his thoughts about the punitive critic mode. I've got I've got another question for you, and and this is something I, I think you'll appreciate. It's a sort of intellectual thing, but it's also I mean, so it's about this idea of the the critic right states and how best to deal with those and you know we've all schema therapists have all had the experience of of both watching you um, address critics uh, but also our own experiences of it being useful to take very assertive uh, approaches with with critic states right Um, you know setting very clear boundaries and even sending them away and you know these kind of uh, things with the very abusive critic states but um you know, I've, I myself has noticed, and we, we sort of in the community, you know, certain people brought up that it does seem at some, on some occasions to, to sort of, you know, flare up the critic even more, you know, that, that yeah. there are some clients which, which don't respond to this sort of uh, very assertive approach uh, in a positive way. And in fact, it could sometimes even make it worse. Um, and so we've come around, I mean, my, myself, the work I've done on this, I've started playing around with different approaches to the critic and can there be other approaches which, where you can guide it from a more compassionate point of view or now, and where I've come, come to this myself is, is the idea that, um, these kind of critical, critical selves, you know, that the punitive mode, the, the demanding mode, et cetera, seem to on most occasions serve some kind of function for the person, um, Overall, of course, it could be a maladaptive effect, but that on, on some primitive level, uh, the critic thinks that, 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 that they're helping the person. Uh, and that perspective right. seems powerful, but I really would love to hear what you think of that. Is it possible that in your mind that these critics can serve a function? And can this be why they're so sticky and so resistant to change? Well, <clears throat> I actually don't think that the critic most of the time serves a helpful function. So if you're asking me, do I think that that category of modes would, would parent, you know, the internalized parent modes, that they are themselves serving a useful purpose. 
I don't think that. I don't think that's why uh, patients hold on to them. It's not why they're reluctant to let go of them. It's not why they get worse when you try to challenge it. So I don't think it's constructive, but I do think there are a lot of nuances to working with someone with that mode, both conceptual nuances and also technical nuances in the technique. And I, I think that one thing is to always be clear who is, the, who is that person, who is the punitive parent or punitive person in their lives and to always go back to that person. Now, it could switch people. It could be the mother, then the father. But it can't be, our model is not that this is just an internalized critical voice. It's that literally they've internalized their own parent or sister or peer group or whatever. Or culture? What's that? Or culture? Um. Good question. I'm, I've got, I'm thinking some examples. Extreme coaches, possibly. Um, take, for example, like, like people who are, um, who are gay, who internalize the Catholic Church yeah. and, and the Catholic uh, sins. Yeah. And if I have a patient right now. I've had many like this, but I'm just saying one right now where he's gay. And even now, you know, 50 years later, he's still can't get rid of the internalized voice, which yeah. is the church. Yep. So they are this cultural. Yeah. But I'd say the vast majority of our traumatized patients, it's not primarily the culture. It's yep. primarily a particular parent. What's your take on, can it be coming from a coping perspective sometimes? Because I've, you know, some of my clients, you know, they would use um, kind of self-blame as a way to kind of so like that scaldings, you know, sort of over controller or some sort of self restriction in terms of affect or, you know, um, spontaneity. Any take on that? Well, I think that um, it's. I think what you're asking is embedded into the concept of the punitive parent because the person. The person learns, it's taught the mode, they internalize it from their parents because the parent doesn't like something the child is doing. So let's say the child's crying and the parent doesn't like the child to cry. Well, they say it's bad, you know, it's bad that you're, you're bad for crying mm -hmm. and they punish them for crying. Well, then the patient uses it, the mode, as a way to keep themselves from crying yeah. because if they cry, then they will be punished. So, so, so here, can I be, can I be controversial? And, and yeah. I think it's more of an intellectual, like the way we're thinking about it. Wouldn't that be the positive function would be to, to avoid punishment? Avoid what? Avoid punishment. That if I take on this interject, then I, yeah, I, I will get punished less because I won't be crying as much. Yeah, but the problem is that it, in their lives as adults, they don't get punished. So it's it's go it's going back to a, an early trauma where they were repeatedly yep. so it's still distortion oh sure it's, like so these days it, it doesn't help them right yeah 100 percent. yeah 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 you know we wouldn't call that a functional we wouldn't say no oh I, I understand what you're saying i understand what you're saying no 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 yeah so it's it's not positive in a functional sense that hey this helps me like a function as a person yeah 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 no what i'm sure. trying to understand is why why internalize something so so maladaptive 
And then if you take it back to childhood. And I'm saying everyone internalizes their parents. It's not something unique to traumatize people. It's our model. Uh We all internalize parts of our mothers, parts of our fathers, parts of other important people in our lives. That's, that's how it's like human nature. It's how learning happens. Learning is not just what people do to you. It's observing people and internalizing how they think, how they feel, how they behave, yep. and it becomes part of us, and it becomes a mode inside of us. So I have a part of me that's like my mother, although it's not yep. a punitive, but it's a, let's say it's like, you know, my, my mother mode is internalized, but it's, it's not, that's not to be punitive. It's not a great mode, but it's not punitive. Yep. But, so I'm saying, you know, so if you look at, patients or even non-patients we've all internalized this that we never focus on as a problem if the parent was healthy but i've had so many people who are not patients say to me i don't you know when i'm raising children i'm not going to be anything like my father or mother then it turns out they do anyway why do they and these are people who are not like like disturbed traumatized uh patients they're relatively healthy adults and i'd say they do it because they've internalized that you internalize what you see and then it's it's so it comes so naturally just immediately go into it you don't even know you it's a sort of um it's this idea that the brain is just sort of soaking in your environment in those early years and that's just what brains do yeah exactly but that in for in terms of a therapeutic way of dealing with it we're dealing with the parts that were soaked in that are really hurting the patient. So mm-hmm. it's the destructive components of the parents that we're focusing on, not everything that's internalized from parents but, or, or brothers. But speaking of in terms of soaking in the environment, I mean, obviously culture is a big, you know, sort of uh, thing to soak up. And we, you know, me and, um, Rob, we often train others, you know, in Southeast Asia and, you know, out of, out of where we are. And, um, you know, we've noticed, you know, differences in terms of schemas and coping styles, you know, I mean, obviously the, the, the model's been developed more in a Western context. Do you think there's sort of much room for adjustment in terms of different cultural contexts? Well, first of all, it's important in the theory, we say that schemas one of the origins of schemas are are cultural so that some schemas are learned primarily through the culture but the majority of the ones we work on are learned through you know specific incidents with particular people in our lives but sometimes of course the culture is just translated through the parent in that case there's almost no distinction in the internalizing of the parent and the internalizing of the culture but People in different, I mean, we've, we've done studies, of, you know, with schema questionnaire with different, with, with different countries. And the fact is, they do have the same, in other words, the list of schemas still works, but which schemas are highest varies oh, yeah, yeah. from culture to culture. So there's hmm. no question that the culture affects what schemas we learn and we develop. Yeah. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, Jeff or Rob, but this idea that sometimes the th- the clinician can collude with the cultural element, or you know, so you have that kind of issue too, yeah. where you have because you're a part of the same cultural kind of group, and you, and then you have someone like us coming in as supervisors, going, yeah, it doesn't have to be that way. 
I don't know what your take is. What I'd say is I think you're right. And I think that if you're going to be, and I can't say I've always done it, but I've always tried to. Whenever I've, when I've gone to a different country, particularly one with a distinctly different culture, but even if it's still a Western culture, I try to learn the culture yeah. from, I talk, but I mean, I try to learn what's different. What are parents like in this culture? Yeah. What, what's a thought? Like it was most striking thing early on was with Germans, was working with so many German people from Germany. And I, I started getting very interested because when we tried to do some of the techniques, like talk, having the father talk to the child, well, they had to, they couldn't call the father, you know, that father, they had to call, you had to like, like sir or something, something yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, name yeah. like that. So I realized that, you know, if I didn't understand the relationship between the child and the parent in that culture, yeah. and adapt the therapy to fit yeah. that, they couldn't use these techniques. So I feel it's always, and I have a patient who's Chinese American, you know, and I've learned an amazing amount about Chinese family structure and Chinese parents, but not just abstractly through the things his mother does and his father does yeah. do to him, yeah. how he, what he has to do to obey them, to honor them. So yeah. I feel like loyalties. Yeah. I'm always, I can't say I'm always effective at it, but I'd say it's part of the therapist's role. If you have someone from a different culture to understand the culture enough that you, you know, that at least you try not to do things that, or you, or more, I'd say more what I do is I ask a lot about the culture. Yep. Not and it makes sense with. if you're working somewhere where there's a, you know another culture um it makes sense to 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 really you know go into that and immerse yourself and 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 you know do do the work in understanding the interface between culture and what we're doing but um i, I think it's worth mentioning uh here um we've done some some work on this too jeff with with our um, master students uh, in particular um one of them alana mao she just finished her thesis um, where we interviewed, um, and I have to shout out actually, because we did a lot of training in Singapore and Hong Kong, to shout out to mm. our Singapore and Hong Kong people. Um, and, you know, they, uh, we interviewed a bunch of schema therapists that we'd trained in Hong Kong and Singapore. And then we asked them all these kind of questions about their experience, qualitative questions, of, of trying to practice schema therapy in that cultural context. And they, they, I mean, there's a lot of bits and pieces to the paper, but the basic thing was that um, that they found was the model um, uh, is intact. You know, that yeah. human beings are human beings, needs are needs. We all have schemas, maybe different ones. Um, but so that was really cool to see, that the, the universality of the model. Um, but what they also found was some, some technical difficulties in, uh, in, in certain techniques where, where there was some sort of cultural issues. So, uh, for example, the big thing in Chinese culture, one of the big things is the idea of filial piety. And, and so basically the idea that you... What's the term again? Sorry. Uh, filial piety. Oh, what's that mean? It's a sort of conf Confucian philosoph philosoph oh. philosophical sort of sentiment about how you should relate to your parents. So basically oh. you should always look after your parents and always submit to them and always care for them. And uh, so it's a sort of deep cultural sort of phenomenon in, in Asian culture that comes from, from sort of Confucius ideas. Um, and so we would run into this in sort of imagery rescripting and stuff where, you know, if you talk back to the parents in certain ways, it would set off 
a sort of um, a loyalty type problem. Um, so this is something, for example, that they wrestle with a lot. Um, and so we're still trying to figure all that out, but, but there is a bit of work to be done. Like the model basically fits, but how you approach the, how you approach the parents, for example, may be very different depending on the culture. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I was. That was what I was actually trying to also point out when I was first working with in trying to teach the model in Germany, and that was that when we tried certain techniques, particularly ones that dealt with the father, uh, both parents, but particularly the father, they like we couldn't do them the way we originally had because the norms about that relationship are different. And the same thing, as you said, I have this Chinese American patient with Chinese parents from who came over here from China. And, you know, it's totally different. And I, when, we, when I tried to do stuff, even talking to him about the origins of schemas and saying, well, you know, it could be your mother being critical all the time. Maybe that did have an effect. Yeah. You know, and he was very protective of her and saying, well, you know, but he he's also very smart. So, and he's Chinese American. So he could say, you know, well, in America, you could, you know, people who are not Chinese in America look at it one way. But if you grow up Chinese with Chinese family, you don't, th you don't think of things in terms of what did your parent do wrong? You don't, you don't talk to them and have conversations. Yeah. So this stuff is gold. Like, I mean, if you're an outsider coming in, you need to understand this. And if, yeah. and I think the other part piece of this is working with the local therapist is a massive resource. Yeah. Say, Hey, you know, I've got some ideas about schema and I've done schema training. You know, you're the expert on your culture. How, how does, how do we make that translation? Exactly. And I just say, if you look for the thing that is most often an issue, <clears throat> sorry, that's different between among cultures, <clears throat> it is the parenting, and it is the relationship between the child and the parent, and it affects what reparenting is. It affects dialogues when you talk to parents. It, it affects when you try to work with a punitive parent when you try to question the way they were raised and tell them it wasn't helpful, all of these things that relate to parenting and reparenting all are change if the culture is different. So I've just realized that, you know, if I deal with anything about parenting, I have to understand it. And often, again, I have a lot of patients who have more, who have enough insight that they can actually teach yeah. me about you know, it. when I realized this too, with the culture piece is when you, when you, you might be a part of a certain culture or a certain subculture. And when you see a patient from the same culture and they realize you're from the same culture, then it's almost as a, ah, you get it. Like we don't have to go into this uh, big, a, what's this about? Yeah. It's like, right, you understand it. And then now, now you can get yeah. to understand me. Right. Mm. Exactly. However, I will just state one example of something where the fact that it's part of the culture doesn't mean you have to go along with it, but yeah. it means if you're going to challenge it, be aware of the risks. Yeah. But because um, this particular patient I'm just telling you about, the Chinese American one, um, his parents were very destructive. And what through a series of questions about his parents and what they were like when they were younger and asking him to compare them against other Chinese parents of his friends, because his whole his whole peer group was Chinese American. His parents were more extreme. Yeah. Of the, 
Well, that's so, that's a very important point because you'll get uh, patients from time to time try to convince you that this is normal. You know, I've once exactly. had people tell me that they've been locked in the cupboard as a child and that this is normal because this is the culture. And it's like, exactly. you have to be able to challenge that. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. So finding the balance between when you when you accept like with germans where almost anyone i try to do the exercise with in germany they just say we're not we're not allowed to do that and they couldn't visualize it so that i can't there's nothing i can do to i'm not going to try to push them to do it a different way it just they can't do it but things like this where they have beliefs about what parents should do to their kids that are wrong even within their own culture i think challenging those are important so it's a very and cultures line. change too and cultures evolve. And I often, um, if I get pushed on this, I make the example, not with patients necessarily, but just with clinicians. In Australia, it was only 50 years ago or so that you could you could beat your spouse with a stick as long as it was not thicker than your thumb, right? And that, that, was, a, that was the culture and that was normal and that was, right? And, and, and not, thankfully, we've, we've evolved, you know, light speed from that. But, you know, if we all sat around 50 years ago and said, well, this is our culture, then, you know, where would we be? Right. And just, oh, can I just say one more thing? And then, yeah. Chris, if you're not, um, this is a sort of a, extending this idea even further. And that is, I, I start, you know, I have a number of patients who are young, like, but young, they're like 27 or they're 20. I don't know how old you guys are, but let's say, you know, they're like 20, Older. 27. And there are things about the culture that, not the parental culture so much, but the culture, the peer group culture. There are things that are just different now, and the and peer pressures that since I don't didn't grow up in them, I didn't know. He can use certain expressions. I wouldn't know what they meant. He'd go on, and even though I'm very technologically oriented, I hadn't gone on gaming gaming yeah. sites. Mm. So a lot of times, in order to really understand, like the culture of guys when they're gaming and what they say to each other is different from the things that yeah. people mm. when I was young, of course we didn't have gaming, but I'm just saying mm. the, the, the words they use, the way they talk, the things they say to each other are different. Yeah. So the culture oh, is technology different. is massive, isn't it, Jeff? Like um, mm. uh, recently I've just, I don't know what's going on for you, Chris, but I think I've realized that therapists, we're all in this accidental helping position with people who are dating online. Yes. And oh, they're coming yeah. to us going, oh, what do I do? And I'm like, dude, I, I got no idea. Like, you know, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't know the first thing about logging in or all the gaming side of things. Right. The gaming is a, a big, you know, thing where you know, if you haven't been sitting there gaming for 14 hours and haven't eaten for two days, sort of thing. Yeah, and, and what you have to be willing to do, if you I feel to really, if you're gonna see a patient for a long time, is actually get in to asking them about the games which games which games do mm. they play what's the what does it mean to have a you know what's a, a first person i don't know they, they, yeah yeah first pure person shooter or whatever it is yeah 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 and and what which games does he like best and mm. we start to find out that certain schemas come up in his gameplay mm. so for mm. example this mm. one the, the patient i'm telling you about the chinese american well, you know, he always likes to choose what are called support character, support characters. You get to choose a character in a game. Right. People like the attack characters from what he says. 
but he likes the support character. He doesn't like to be the aggressive shooter character. Right. And, and then we were able to link this to his whole thing about aggression and about you know getting angry at people and things like that. And it, it was very interesting. And the roles you, that he played in the gaming, it was it would link to sort of roles he played in his other relationships or? Yes, in life in general, that he doesn't like being in an aggressive mode, in aggressive modes with people in general. He doesn't like arguments, mm. doesn't like conflict. Mm. So now how do you do gaming if you don't like mm. conflicts? Since most yeah. gaming involves conflict, and he found a way to do it, which was mm. to choose wow. characters that are not aggressive characters. And he play, he's great. I mean, he's great when he says he's great at playing those characters. But it just, it's, I'm saying there's so many nuances when you get into these things that are new, like gaming that you don't know about, and how that plays out different aspects of schemas and personality. Yeah, yeah, cool. Let's... Jeff, Jeff, I'm interested in, um, you know, obviously the model sort of, you know, sort of growing will probably continue to grow, but yeah. I'd be interested to see, yeah, how does um, the model fit with things like well-being and, and parenting and prevention of mental health issues, positive psych, non-clinical populations often, you know, we kind of get fixed, fixated and obviously the models come from a clinical perspective, but what's your, what do you, how do you see things going forward when it crosses over into the mainstream? Well, I've all, I've felt from very early on, at least by the, by the time I had written the schema therapy textbook, which would have been around 2000, that we should try to find ways to incorporate or develop programs for parent training or even schools that were using the principles of schema therapy, not the techniques really, but more the ideas of what are the core needs? You know, what do parents do that create traumas? What, is it, what does it mean to be a punitive parent? So I feel like within our, our developmental model and our theory are enormous numbers of things that would be helpful to parents in, in working with their children. So, and, and there have been, I know, a few parent training programs that were started, yeah. but I never saw, I never actually saw a complete uh, tra parent training program, but I know that um, th there have been people trying to do it. Because often it's often unwitting, you know, like the behavior, you might be, you know, schema driven and, and the client might be punitive, you know, the, the parent might be really highly punitive, but it's not, it's not really coming from that particular kind of place. It's not, not an intentioned experience. I also, I talk about this legacy of schemas because I've, in, in three exam, three different families, I've seen three generations of patients, like, the person who was originally the parent, then I see their child who was then becomes a parent, then their child, which is the original patient's grandchild. And I can see schemas like, like unrelenting standards or punitiveness or uh, subjugation running through the family. And it's like you can almost know, you, you know where it came from because the parent is, the, the patient did the same thing passed along the same thing to their children that they had learned from their parents. So often it's interesting to watch how schemas, because it's the same internalizing process, that each, each generation internalizes the behaviors and thinking of the, of the generation before. 
And through that mechanism, schemas get passed along from one to another. There's a sort of, um, you know, the parenting aspect, 100%. I think we can, we can really help well-being in the world by, by helping parenting and getting that right. That's one aspect. Uh, what, what about with a sort of building the positive self and the healthy adult and, and going into more the well-being aspects? Like, do you see that schema therapy can help there? Well, I feel that's a great, a great area where people could expand schema therapy, but haven't done that much yet. In other words, what some people, of course, do as they have do with all therapies, they take techniques from other like positive therapies and they incorporate them into schema therapy, which is fine. But that's not the same as our expanding the model itself. Yeah. And so I feel it would be great to expand, to expand both the modes and the schemas to incorporate um, maybe more healthy schemas, maybe more types of healthy adults. Maybe there's a spiritual adult mode, a, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, a, I don't know, a, pa a healthy parent mode. Maybe there's, mm -hmm. there, you know, there's, but within the healthy modes, there are subsets within yeah. healthy and that each of those could translate into behaviors or ways of thinking or beliefs. And I know that in this realm, like positive schemas ha have become a, a bit of a hot topic, right? In schema. And a lot of work's been done on, on the fact we know there are 14 positive schemas and that kind of stuff. Um, what, what's missing. And I, I've done a little bit of work on this, but I think it's a lot of people are, you know, what are, what are the practical implications of a, of a positive schema therapy? Exactly. And I think that's what I'm getting at, too, is that because I was involved in that, in the translation of the, in helping them take, take the maladaptive schemas and yeah. convert them into positive schemas. And it is very important to do that. But that's with John uh, and George. And... Yeah, right. Exactly. And I, I was I always worked with, with, with them in doing it to be sure that it was still consistent with a schema model. Um, but that isn't the same as, as you just said, it's not the same as interventions or techniques to get people to act in a more positive way. I mean, one obvious thing would just be to say, well, if you have healthy parents, of course, if we, if we have healthier parents, we'll have healthier, healthier uh, patients with healthier schemas and healthy positive. Because yeah. if you have a healthy parent, you'll have positive schemas and positive modes. But then we're just back to parenting again. And we're saying, well, and, right. And we're, we're, of course, we're going to be, I mean, working with patients still and people where they didn't get that. And, and so, exactly. but the question comes up. So if we take the two dimensional model of positive and negative schemas seriously, yeah. you know, how might this change what we do in our imagery? How might this change what we do in our, in our interventions? I think that's still to be worked out. Yeah, well, it's a very good question, I guess. So you're focusing on the idea of how can we incorporate into imagery, for example, the idea of a positive, positive schemas yeah. or positive modes. And that's, that's a good idea. Um, and I guess, see, in the model, when we come into an image as the healthy adult, we're supposed to be the positive person. We, we are the positive figure who is and helping them shift from negative schemas to positive schemas, from negative modes to positive modes. So the therapy relationship is supposed to so be... So in that way, it's already in, it's already in the model. 
Right. Yeah. So what's more interesting, I think, to me is how do you teach positive schemas um, not just as part of fighting, not just as part of combating unhealthy schemas. Yeah. How do you do it separately from that? Like, uh, so if you want to take it, let's assume we have someone, we've done schema therapy, they're quite healthy now, but there's still a lot of areas they could grow in that would make them more healthy. Well, is there a way to do positive, like a positive form of schema therapy that's not geared toward dysfunction? Sure, yeah. Maladaptive, but it's it's geared toward growth. Growth and optimization. And I, yeah. yeah. Right, and growth. Right. So we don't have much about, we've never really defined what makes a healthy person beyond the absence of the negative schema. Yeah. So yeah. we don't talk about spirituality. We don't talk about mm -hmm. compassion. We don't talk about justice. We don't talk about morality. I mean, all mm -hmm. of these things that mm -hmm. I think are part of a, you know, of a positive self or identity. We, even our model of identity, we don't have a clear model of what it means to develop a healthy identity, although we have the idea of it. But so lots of ideas there for, for budding, you know, PhD students and uh, <laughs> people wanting to contribute. Absolutely. And particularly this thing that comes up many times is a spiritual mode. And mm -hmm. with so much interest in meditation and spirituality, the question of how is there a way we can add, that schema therapy can add something to that beyond what people already do who teach meditation or teach yoga or whatever. So I'm always wondering, is there more we could do that schema therapy could inform those techniques better better than... So the frontiers the of schema are quite exciting, but that really we just scratch the surface. Exactly. And particularly mm -hmm. if you talk about the positive schemas, I think positive schemas and not just positive schemas, but growth in general the positive development of the self. Yep. Um, because again, and that's true of almost all of psychology, almost all of it focuses on either remediating pathology or yeah. preventing mm. pathology. Mm. It's yeah. very little part of psychology focuses on how to make someone, how to develop someone and help someone develop in a healthy way. And it's just interesting because schema is such a powerful model when, when focused on the negative um, yes. the, the natural thing to look at after and go, how powerful could this be if, if we were able to move that more into the optimization and growth? Right. And for example, we could develop a model. We could have a part of the model that talks about what are the facets of a, I forget what Maslow's term was. Uh, uh, hierarchy. Hierarchy of needs. Very, the very top of that. Uh, um, self, 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 self actualization. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What so, is that? Yeah. Yeah. What is self-actualization? If we were expanding the schema model to not just mean the absence of schemas or modes, what else would it mean to have us to be self-actualized? How do we define that? Because part of a, anything that's going to be positive or growth oriented has to have a model of what it means to grow. What does it mean to become complete? And if you don't have a model of what that even looks like, how do you help someone get to it? We don't even know how to define it. So now, now, Jeff, we have um, 
a pretty big listenership, I would say, of people that are learning the model or want to know more about the model. Yeah. You've got a bit of a, a, you know, sort of a supportive audience in that sense. Yeah. I'm interested in terms of, yeah, we were talking about self-actualization, maybe self-actualization as a schema therapist, maybe sort of thinking about that way. What what sorts of um, common pitfalls do you see schema therapists sort of, sort of moving into or those learning the model? What advice would you give them in terms of learning the model? Yeah, pitfalls, you mean, as they're trying to, as they're trying to practice it or learn it? Yeah, yeah, and they're practicing and learning, maybe, yeah. Well, I guess, I guess I'm going to pick two extremes because I've seen people do both. One is too rigid and uh, an adherence to the model, which is trying to, to approach schema therapy as you might cognitive therapy, like a series of techniques that you have to do. And if you do one after the other and you learn each technique and you apply it at the right time, it will then yeah. the person better. To formulaic. To formulaic, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I'd say that's one risk is to not try to convert schema therapy into a formula. It isn't. It's, it's, a, it's a way of looking at a, a total patient and understanding them. Uh, and then making all the interventions somehow come out of that broader way that you conceptualize them. So I'd say the first thing I'd just say, don't make it formulaic. Now, on the other extreme, I would say, don't try to blend when you're first learning it. Don't try to take what you already were doing and integrate yeah. it with schema therapy. Yeah. Learn schema therapy as it is. Now, of course, if you learn things about how to be how to relate to the patient, that's fine. But if you learn things about from a different model that are inconsistent yeah. with schema therapy, drop it, get rid of it, try to yeah. put it out of your mind and yeah. learn schema therapy. So you're always thinking within a schema therapy model. Now, once mm. you're able to do that and do it well with patients, then you can go back and re-examine all the things you learned before and decide, do you want which ones do you want to keep? Which ones do you want to get rid of? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say the danger of trying to, uh, the most common thing back when I was younger was, of course, cognitive therapy, that people mm-hmm. would come out of a cognitive therapy background and try to take all the different assumptions about cognitive therapy yeah. and extend them into schema therapy. And, then- and that's our experience, you know, training people. I don't know about you, Rob, but, you know, feeling that it's, it's seen as sort of... Uh, CBT plus or this sort of extension, but they're still keeping with the exactly. core tenants. In reality, it's not CBT plus. It's it's that CBT has a role in schema therapy, but it's the essential, it's most essential difference is that it's developmental and you have to relate, connect everything to childhood and to needs. And the other is, you know, the idea of emotions that we are far more focused on emotional change than we are on cognitive change. Now, we hope that, cog- that emotional change will bring about cognitive change. And, of course, at times we give labels that are cognitive to things that are emotional so the patient can make sense of it. But primarily, we believe that this core level change that we're trying to bring about comes about more through emotional techniques yeah. and the therapy relationship so so i'd say shifting your focus away from logic away from reason away from you know thinking uh, from distortions and get it focused more on emotions and how do emotions change 
I mean, yeah, I find yeah. the, the, the piece of schema that remains cognitive, that, that seems that sort of remains useful throughout the treatment is, is the formulation. That is not exactly. to be formulaic, but to be formulation yeah. driven. Right, exactly. And that's why I put so much focus on this conceptualization and the case conceptualization point, because I think that is what drives the whole treatment. And that it is something that clearly distinguishes um, schema therapy for most every other therapy. So if you do, when I had, I have, I also developed the case conceptualization form for cognitive therapy, and you know it was drastically different from schema therapy. So, so the idea is that a cognitive conceptualization of a case is really different from a schema uh, conceptualization of a case. So you need to be sure you're doing a schema conceptualization rather than a cognitive one. So, and you can fit the cognitive in in the places where it's part of the conceptualization. But yeah. I would say to realize it is the conceptualization in schema terms that's the essence of schema therapy. Yeah. If you don't do it right or well enough, or you don't use that as your map, then yep. you're going to not. You're not really schema. doing schema therapy. You might be doing imagery scripting. You might be doing different things, but you're yeah. not doing schema work. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not our, our techniques are not what defines the therapy, which I always yeah. tell Beautiful. people. Want to use if you want to add other techniques, fine. But you've got to make sense of them within yeah. within our with the case conceptualization. So yeah. if you yeah. want to use EMDR, that's fine. It often is very helpful. But if you're going to do EMDR, think of where where is what you're doing when you're doing there. Where does that fit within the yeah. patient's yeah. Uh, conceptual uh, structure? How does it fit developmentally for them? Which traumas does it go back to? Yeah. with schemas that are connected to those traumas. And that's the essence of the integration piece in, in schema, that as long as it comes back to to, the, to a formulation and it makes sense with the model. Exactly. And that's what keeps, by keeping focused on the conceptualization and always asking, how does this relate to the conceptualization? It keeps you from being either technique-driven or driven by other models. I yeah, no, love it, love it. So we got one more question for you, Jeff, um, and for, for now, and um, it relates to, I guess, some advice for us as folks who are who are involved in training and supervision. You know, what what advice do you have for us? You know, in in trying to teach or support others to learn the model. Do you have just any little snippets of wisdom that you want to share with 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 us, folks like Chris and I? It's a Actually, it's a good question. I don't think about that much. I probably should because I'm always watching my own role as a supervisor with mm. therapists. But I'm trying to think advice, like advice for advice, like for the training program or for more for supervision. Well, for supervision, I think, yeah. You know, when mm. we're trying to help folks, you know, learn the model, and if anything comes to mind that you'd, you know, that you'd want to share with us to keep in mind. Yeah, well, and I'm trying to think of. Well, for, I guess the first thing is that this may sound like a stupid place to start, but I guess I start by thinking of my sup, of supervisees as patients. So uh, you know, they're they're both colleagues and they're patients, and they're so they're they're trainees, they're colleagues, and they're patients because I'm always going to be watching for things that they do that come out of their own background. Right. And I guess I feel that, just like I said to you, when I work with a patient from a different culture, I want to understand mm -hmm. their culture. Yeah. Same with supervisee. I want to know that supervisee well enough yeah. to understand, like, when 
like, for example, if they're going to do reparenting, knowing how they were parented and how much affection was there, how much praise was there. The more you know these things about the person you're supervising, the more you can guide them to not just do with their patients what parents did with them. So I would say Mm. one would be to know the supervisee very well and their background so that you can watch for ways in which that background might be influencing it in a negative in a negative way yeah um it's a beautiful observation yeah it's absolutely i I can't agree more chris what do you think yeah often we get people to um, do their own formulation you know supervisees which has been very helpful for a couple of my my supervisees to it takes time to do and you know priority prioritizing yourself to do it but exactly another thing i'd say is that you know, with many supervisees I've had over, who I saw over a longer period of time, um, it actually became, many of them actually became close friendships. So I would just say that to not approach, that just like therapy is reparenting, well, supervising someone can be a close relationship between two people. You can talk about, I can talk about things in my childhood. They can talk about things in their childhood, things happening in their life now, things happening in my life. And I just think that it adds a new dimension to supervision when there is a strong personal bond. Now, I realize it's not possible with every supervisee, but uh, I think I would just say my most successful supervisions have been the ones where I feel the closest where I've had the closest connection to the person I supervise. That's so I, true. I think I've had the same sort of experience. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks the for sharing, Jeff. I, yeah. Sure. The other thing I'd just say, of course, just to follow up on what I've already said, which is stressing conceptualization all the time. Mm. Uh, and mm. only because, you know, again, I know that in some, some of the training programs around the world, again, they like to focus on the techniques and they yeah. don't put enough focus on the conceptualization. So I would just say it's almost impossible to overemphasize, you know, uh, case conceptualizations. Jeff, we've uh, we've taken an hour and a half of your time. Well, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a incredibly stimulating. Yeah, I've like got lost this in a portal. Major schema geek out like session. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I think of us of Wayne's World, the Wayne's World clip at the start. I think you know we <laughs> we really enjoyed having you um on the program, and we'd love yeah. we'd Hopefully love to have you again back. on one day, Jeff, um, down the track. We might keep in touch and and sort of see where it goes. Sure, that would that would be. You didn't, you didn't name a day, did you? You just said down the track. Yeah. I, down the track. <laughs> well, actually, this is uh, Aussie Aussie sort of uh, euphemism. Down the track. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, I'd love to do it. This has been, you know, very, very stimulating. It's been, I like that it's been casual and that we can, uh, you know, but what might be interesting is to, um, if we, if we have a follow up to actually also, since we've now done this sort of broad discussion to actually talk Mm -hmm. about specific things that come up either with patients or things that come up in in supervision the jeff we have we have so we, we sort of have so many things we can ask you about that we could Door go now that you've opened the door we're going specific so 
Podcast number two, the specifics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah. The over you need this overview first to know me and to know yeah. what's important to me, I think. But at a certain point, you know, seeing how I approach a particular thing, situation, often I end up doing it in ways that without my knowing it are just different from what other people think I would do. So we will definitely follow you up with that. So um, let's let's make it a wrap and we'll hear from from Jeff Mm. again down the track. Um, So Thanks, everyone, for listening. Chris. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Jeff, and thanks for your time. And we'll see you in the next episode. See you soon, guys. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate you inviting me to do this.